Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to The Robert Wesley Brand Show. Inspiration, wisdom, encouragement, and empowerment. We would like to take you back down the vista of the past and underscore a very, very special friendship that we have maintained over the years and we go back to the time that we were 16 and 17 years old. It's so much to say in sort of warming up the space with you. It's just the two of us, which I think is the first time we've done this, maybe even ever, on this in this space. Because usually when you're here, there are co-hosts. Yeah. So no more co-hosts. You know how we evolve into whatever the next version of ourselves is going to be. And this is an evolution for me. So let's just talk about the energy in which this conversation is happening. This is Rosh Hashanah as we tape this. Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. So that's the first thing. We're doing it on the 7th. All the powerful energy around the number 7. And as of 1252 this morning, it's the new moon. So this is the new moon we're doing this on. So it's full of good energy and it feels so right and so good and so special to be sharing this space with you, given all of that lineup. I am not surprised because I'm telling you, there is divinity in our relationship. Every encounter... You and I are always on this positive thing. I recognize that our two souls, I truly believe souls have been here before, knew each other before. Once you and I had that first conversation, you became dear to me immediately. And we have stayed that way ever since. Mm-hmm. I really wish all my friendships could be like that. You've always taken what I wanted to do seriously. Never discouraged. Mm-hmm. Always offering something positive. A good friend, I feel, just allows you to be who you are. Do you know when you would travel, lived in Europe or visited Europe, that I was always so fascinated with you to be so brave mm-hmm. to go out there and do you are doing. Thank you. I don't question I have people who I love, but you were instantaneous. Instantaneous. The first time we met, we met was when you came to the desk. But it was instantaneous. Yeah. And my soul literally leaped towards you. Wow. Before I first could get a chance to, my soul was there. And my soul had never failed me.
life Love those positive vibes With a man who don't mind taking a chance It's Robert Wesley Branch Be well, be encouraged, be inspired Every day, hey, hey, yay Be well, be encouraged, be inspired Every day It's the Robert Wesley Branch Show. I stumbled on this photograph and kind of made me laugh. It took me way back. I appreciate your memories so much. I just so enjoy just being in the moment in those memories, which are so deeply embedded in us after all these years. I want to add some storytelling to some of the points that you mentioned, because you mentioned in one of your memories that your first sort of sighting of me was when I came up to the desk. And the desk you're speaking of, I just want to share with everybody, was the desk at Union Labor Life Insurance Company, where you were the receptionist at the time. And I was on a temp assignment there in 1992. That's when we met. That's where our story together begins at that desk in 1992. Wow. That's 29 years ago. I was 26 years old. Wow. That's the desk you're talking of. And what I remember about that memory that you shared is that in addition to answering the phones, directing people standing in front of you to where they needed to go or identifying who they were and why they were there, which is what I went through with you at that desk. Who are you? Why are you here? And there's where you go. And doing that, you were also on the side. This is way before these kids talk about side hustles. I'm talking about 29 years ago. You had a side hustle. Of painting greeting cards right there at the front desk. And they were gorgeous. There were these women, some African inspired, some women of different walks of life, different cultures, different points in their journey, different emotions they were expressing in very vibrant colors and in sassy poses. All the art that we see, which we consider commonplace today, 29 years ago, was a different space. It was presented in a different space. It was novel. And you were doing this. I was fascinated as a journalist that there is not only this soul as you mentioned that I've known before but there's this artistry this story that's right here waiting for me to share it with people which is exactly what I did in the Washington Afro-American I know yep I think you brought the article to me like I took the picture that accompanied the article right there standing in front of your desk and I sent it to you this morning and I've sent it to you many times. Every time we talk, yeah. I send it to you before we talk. But when you look at that right now, if you have yeah. it in front of you, like what do you see? Who is she? Paint a picture of who she was at that time in 1992. In 1992, I was happily on my own. I was divorced. I was just full of possibilities. What did I want to do? My father was the one who influenced me to take the job and do what you got to do. Because he said, he always taught me, you know, it's nice to want to do things. But remember, in the walking to do things, you got to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You need just to sit still and stare at a phone or say hello to somebody. It's like, are you out of your mind? That just almost felt like a canvas. And it was like, I have to create. 
I don't have a choice. I always, from a small child, that's the first real thought I had was trying to draw in the front pages of my mother's encyclopedia. My hands can't sit still. My mind does not rest. Mm. So that's why I see that young girl. I'm doing my job, but I'm also trying to create. Bring that joy from which God gives you everywhere. I'm serious about using every man a second to have some type of purpose. When I was standing in front of you, at Union Labor Life Insurance Company in 1992, and you're telling me this story, and I'm watching you in this creation that you're doing with these cards. I'm not only buying the physical cards, but I'm also buying your story. I'm buying you talking to me about these cards. That's also what you're buying. Exactly, exactly. When I think about you buying my cards, that is exactly the scenario. You would stand there, you would ask me questions, I would tell you what I was doing, and, and then you would come back and you would buy cards. I want you to understand that it was not lost on me. I know you were also doing that to encourage. See, when you talk about asking questions about me, mm-hmm. then I immediately have to make that connection between you. Because you really, you listen. When I would teach asking, I would talk about this. There's listening, and then there's listening. Mm-hmm. You are a listener, okay? You're listening to what is being said. You're listening to what's not being said and how it's being said. And you act accordingly. Thank you. We've shared some meals together. I've made some meals that we've shared together on numerous occasions that are memories that I treasure deeply. I remember you coming to uh, Bethesda several times. I remember lasagna. I remember them Brussels sprouts. I appreciate you every time you talk about (laughs) those Brussels sprouts. Oh, boy, you don't understand. I always like Brussels sprouts, but because of you, <laughs> something as ubiquitous as Brussels sprouts, I make it the same way when you served it with that day, uh, myself and Maisha went and had lunch at your home. Mm-hmm. All of that was so delicious. Yeah, I love to cook. I know this. And if the listeners knew where you live, they'd be lined up at the door. <laughs> I really enjoy so it. You don't play. Thank you, love. My sister, yeah. thank you. First of all, if anybody comes to your home, you are so welcoming. You know what I used to love? When you lived in Bethesda, and I used to get on the train and go, and we would have lunch together. Mm-hmm. There were two poignant times I've spent with you. Mm-hmm. Very, very poignant. The very first time you invited me over to your house, and you had another young lady friend there. And the conversation, I don't know how, got about Johnny Gill. And then she went on to say that Johnny Gill owed something to the community he came from. Uh-huh. You stopped her and you said, Johnny Gill owes us nothing. If he wants to do something for the community, that's wonderful. Johnny Gill only owes Johnny Gill something. I know I'm paraphrasing, but the way you said it, that you got to take care of yourself first before you can go out there and help the community mm-hmm. and then you do it you shouldn't do it from a sense of oh, because I have I'm famous I should just go out there and do it you need to have a purpose and a sense of self 
And I really got it. At the time, when you, when you clipped her wings on that topic, <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. It made me go home and think about it. I used to think all the time, too, if you're rich, you should be able to do this, do that. Then I went home and I said, he's so right. If you're going to do something, you have money, do it for all the right reasons. Don't think that what you earn, you have to, you know, right. just do whatever. I don't get that. That was a very poignant time. Another poignant time was um, the time, again, I came to your house and we ate. And Maisha was sitting there. Mm. She was so sweet. What? She's no longer with us, is she? Is no, she? she's no longer with us. I swear, she was so sweet that you could dip your her finger in coffee. Mm-hmm. And it had enough sh- sugar. She was so sweet. Mm-hmm. And kind and gracious and open. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to know who a person is, pay attention to the company they keep. Mm-hmm. That's true. Then you know who your friend really is. Mm-hmm. You know, because if that person is always gossiping or having something negative to say about somebody else, I promise you, your turn will come. Mm-hmm. I have never, you know, heard you say any. You've always said the truth, but I've never heard you say anything in a mean-spirited way. Mm-hmm. And see, when we say the truth, not our own truth, but the truth, truth, mm. the empirical truth. Come on now. I appreciate that about you. You get right to the point. Because the first thing you will do is you'll call me out. But you don't do it in a way that I think is mean. You do it just a straight love. Mm. That was kind of what happened with that young lady. She was just coming off the cuff, talking about just because Johnny Dale is from a particular neighborhood, mm-hmm. that she was some old. And you just stopped her and spoke to them beautiful truth. Who cares? If you reach a point of notoriety, it is a beautiful thing to think. But just because of your platform that you should do something. Well, wait a minute now. Hold on. Before you go sticking your hand into that cookie jar, <laughs> you better make sure you know why you win it. Right. Everyone has pipe dreams Most everyone I know Looking for, waiting for, hoping for That rainbow in the snow You brought that beautiful Bible for me And we sat in DuPont Circle mm-hmm. And you were reading to me but I, I still consider one of the hardest books of the Bible to comprehend. And that is the Isaiah. Mm, my Isaiah. That is the one thing I did not get a chance to do is become a chaplain. Mm-hmm. For me, that was something of great importance. Mm-hmm. You mentioned like, earlier that we would read the Bible together in DuPont Circle Park, which we have done that. I remember going to right. Kramer Books and we got that Bible and we sat there. and. Right. That memory, tying that to what you said, that every encounter we've had has been sacred, which you just spoke. Praise God for that. And I agree 100%. Yeah. That time in the park, 
Let's see if you remember this. This is the memory I want to add on to that memory that you already spoke of. At the park at Fort DuPont Circle, we were sitting there reading the Bible. And I remember this homeless woman walked by and she didn't say a word. She looked at me. She looked at you. We looked at her. She walked on by and we kept reading. She went all the way around that circle. Because remember, it's DuPont Circle, but it's that, that circle is just a circle. You can walk around that circle, you know, all day long, literally in the park, sitting on the bench. But there's that sidewalk that goes right in front of you all the way around the park. You're going to pass the men playing chess. You're going to pass all kinds of various sundry activities in that park by that fountain. You and I were sitting there and she walked past, made note of us. We made note of her. And she walked around that circle. When she came back around, you and I were wrapping up and she came over. She came over to us and she looked at me and it was a combination of she looked like to me and my recollection in my memory now of the black woman from Beverly Hill Hillbillies. Remember Granny from Beverly uh-huh. Hill? She looked like she reminded me of the black version of that hair pulled back, older woman, frail, you know, but spicy. She came closer to us and looked at us, had this glassy look in her eye and she just looked and she started telling this story about her. I think she had 10 children and how they all had turned their back on her. In some form or fashion, some more than others. But she began to unpack this story, the specific details of which I do not remember, but I remember the 10 children. Because I think the conversation was, how did you get to where you are? Because she appeared to be a homeless woman who was what they call now, which I appreciate, unhoused. At any rate, as she began to tell her story, she started walking away. We kind of wrapped up this chat. You're sitting right there. I'm sitting there. She looked at me and she said, I will never forget this for obvious reasons. She looked at me and she said, I look at you and I see the Apostle Paul. And she turned and walked away. And you and I sat there and wept. We wept together on that bench at that park. We wept. And she walked away. You talking about souls that have been here before? Just telling you this. (laughs) Remembering this. Souls that have been together. That was a soul right there. A old spirit invoking the Apostle Paul. It didn't so much have anything to do with me, although it was a prophetic word that I received. But it was about what was going on in her spirit and what she was seeing walking the park that day. It was profound. We wept. I, I remember it being very powerful. We are like two sevens whenever we sit together and start talking. <laughs> we brought in energy because once we sat, we sat down and started engaging, I know others who are of a like mind had to feel that energy. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Robert, I have a question for you. Okay. The thing I've always loved, you always strive for excellence and strive to give the best of yourself. Why is that? Why have I always strived to give the best of myself? Yes, sir. <laughs> I appreciate you seeing me in that light as someone who strives to give the best of myself. I thank you for seeing me that way. Appreciate that. I think our souls have been here before we knew each other before. That's very important. That's very important. So I would like to stay with that in answering your question. You know, my soul, there's some soul stuff there that that drive that you see of wanting to be the best. See, I see that as a spirit, Melissa. That's a spirit that's in me. That's part of my soul that travels with my soul. A spirit. That is beyond my human personality and my human character. It's a spirit that's in me. That no matter how low I go or no matter how high I get, that spirit is saying, "Mm, there's another version of this that I want to pull you to. That's what it is. Thank God for that spirit. And imagine if all of us were to just really tap into what I call the best of ourselves. Mm-hmm. 99.9% of 
of the things people get hung up on they wouldn't even think about. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. I've always wondered about. Mm-hmm. When you went to Amsterdam, what was that really like? What an adventure. Yes, that was an adventure because I wasn't supposed to go by myself. My friend Fred, who you've met, Fred, he was supposed to go with me and he got sick. We were going to go together. We planned this trip for a year. We were going to go. And he got sick right mm-hmm. before the trip. I mean, like days. We were leaving on Friday. He got sick like on Monday. And it was like, oh, no. And he physically, I don't think he was hospitalized. I think he ended up in the hospital like after I left. But he was so sick that he couldn't mm-hmm. go. And so I, I went by myself. I went to France first, to Paris. And then I took a weekend trip on the train to Amsterdam. And it was great. I got there on a Saturday morning, I think it was, or whatever morning it was, Tuesday, whatever it was. And stumbled into this bar because I was looking for weed. So I knew the bulldog had weed. You know, you could order it off the menu. Stumbled into this bar, ordered the weed, ordered some beer, and bam, the radio came on and Kurt Cobain had died. I'll never forget that. So I'm sitting in that cafe in the wee small hours of the morning. It was like the sun was coming up, I think. And smoking and drinking and listening to Kurt Cobain music because he had died that morning. That's the news we were getting. So Amsterdam was very freeing. It was very freeing to have people riding bikes. I hadn't seen that in the United States like that. I mean, like we rode cars, drove cars. They were riding bikes. That was freeing. Seeing the red light district that was a thriving business that people came from all around the world to partake of these women sex workers that was fascinating and freeing how they were in these little windows and then when somebody would come you'd go on their door and they'd pull the curtain and the light would go off until they were free again that was fascinating to me i had never seen anything like that there was a street called Harlamastraat. when you're in the old world and you go down a street called Harlamastraat, and you say Oh, wait a minute. It's black folks on this street. Oh, wait a minute. Harlamastrat. It means Harlem Street. And it was like being in Harlem. And, you know, that's where I went into this one bookshop and the dude says, is that all you need? I was like, nah, what else you got? He went under the counter and pulled out a box of weed. You know, I bought some weed from him. So it was exciting. I I was just thrilled. Amsterdam was thrilling. The only thing that didn't excite me about Amsterdam, coming from Paris as I was, was the food. They are really fond in Amsterdam at that time, and I think this is historically and culturally, of herring. So for breakfast, you'd get a lot of herring, a lot of smoked fish. And I wasn't into herring at that time like that. I'm coming from the patissiers with every kind of croissant and chocolate bread. And, you know, it was just beautiful. The breakfasts in France are as exquisite as you can pay for. You will get going from that to Amsterdam was chilling because the food scene was not happening at that time. Well, I want to talk about. The fact that your podcast is how many years old? This is, thank you for asking, the 12th season that we're in right now doing this today. You are show number 272, 272 shows to date. I want to tell your listeners who don't know this, when Rob first started doing the podcast, he was like a lion in the forest. (laughs) Nobody else was doing this. When he first asked me to do this thing, I was interested, but I understand until I saw him put it together and I was amazed and well my beloved friend and sister I think this is a good place to give props where props are due and this takes us back to the beginning of our story in 1992 because on March 26th 1992 which happens to be Diana Ross's birthday March 26th whom this man that I'm going to tell you about adored 
Diana Ross, and he died on her birthday. And his name was, you're very well familiar with it, Melvin Lindsay. And Melvin, yeah. Melvin Lindsay, Melvin Lindsay is the reason why the podcast, when you say, when I heard you put it together, Melvin Lindsay is the inspiration behind what you heard when you first heard me put all of this together. Because I would sit home as a teenager yeah. and listen to Melvin Lindsay play records on WHUR, yeah. The Quiet Storm. And I wanted to be just... Yeah like Melvin Lindsay. He didn't talk all that much, but he played those records. So what I added was the combination of listening to him play that music and talking is what you heard on the podcast. That was the original vision for it. And that has grown over 12 years. Yeah, I would listen to him in college. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, yes. I loved him. I would go this far because I want to give these brothers their props in my life. It was Melvin Lindsay and Max Robinson who was the first black anchor. Oh my God. World News Tonight, yep. And Les Brown. These were the brothers that I was looking to, these black men. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be like Melvin Lindsay. I wanted to be like Max Robinson. I wanted to be like Les Brown. So what you heard in that podcast all those years later was a combination of those three brothers, Melvin, Max, and Les. Wow. Yep. They were in my head when I was putting it together. Okay. So that's what, okay, I got you. That inspired you. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed, my darling. I was so impressed with what you were trying to do. And again, you were like a lion in the forest. You were doing your thing and doing it with conviction. I appreciate that. What I do want to say about that, though, because you raised this in me in this moment, too, and inspired me to say this. And this is some realness for people. I think it's important to share this level of detail. When I first started on February 6th in 2010, in my mind were all the creative instincts that I just shared. But I also saw this venture as a commercial venture. I was just coming off working at a television network and I didn't necessarily see television in my future. This was three years before I started Fix My Life in 2010. 2013. So there was a three year period there where I was in what I would now look at as a spiritual wilderness insofar as my career was concerned. Many people can relate to this. They're waiting tables. They're doing other things except the thing that they really want to be doing. And that's where I was when I first started this space. So I looked at it as a commercial venture, as a way to keep me going when I was not engaged in my career. Twelve years later, 11 and a half years later, I can tell you that the evolution has been and the revelation has been that this space that we're sitting in right now is not my commercial offering to the world. That was not the purpose of this space. I didn't learn this until five, six years into it, maybe seven, eight years into it, that the purpose of this space was not commercial for me, that it was part of going back to your words earlier, it was part of my service and is part of my service and my ministry to humanity. This is how I serve. So once I understood that, it has evolved and shifted. So there are no commercials anymore. I'm not trying to craft something that is a commercial product. I've left that behind on the road. This is the space that God has given me to share my gifts, what I know to be my gifts okay. of communication. It's part of my ministry. And now, how do you think the whole genre has evolved? It seems like everybody and their brother has started a podcast. It's true. Where do you see your podcast in the context of podcast? What makes you distinct and different? I would say, Melissa, my beloved sister and my friend, that, and I want to be very conscious about this and loving as I say this. When you look at the world of singers and artistry, lots of people can sing. When I ask you to focus your mind on artistry, on artists and visionaries, a few people will start rising to the top for you, whoever they are. So in a world where everybody has a podcast, there are those of us who are podcasters. There are those of us who are 
artists and there are those of us who are visionaries. I see myself as an artist and a visionary. I think one of the greatest gifts that we as spiritual beings, each one of us, can give to ourselves, and I'm the first one in that line to tell you that it is daily work and it fights against every instinct of the matrix to not compare yourself to any other human being. That's hard work, but it's important not to compare yourself to any other human being, to see yourself and practice living your life as a unique expression of God and let that stand and speak for itself. And that's what I endeavor to do with this space. Just be myself, be the storyteller that I know that I am and was born to be, and let whatever that expression is in the moment speak for itself and land where it lands in this space. You still have people from the beginning that are still with you? I do. There are people who are faithful. Because I was on every Saturday for the first basically nine years, they don't really know how to access me now that I'm not doing it live every Saturday because I would promote it as such and I would be there at Saturday at 10 o'clock. Now I do it at my leisure and post it when I feel like it. Like what we're doing today, just a heads up and I'm saying it in love. It's going to take me a long time to put all this together just because of what my life is like now. You know, there are other things. And so I put it together at my leisure and then it goes out when it goes out. That's harder for people to find unless they are faithfully subscribed to my YouTube channel. And if they're a Facebook friend. Now, when I first started doing this in 2010, I had the max like 4,000 Facebook friends because at that time I didn't understand what social media was and how to use it based upon who I was at that time. And my consciousness at that time, I was a friend collector. Some of y'all know these people. They collect friends. And that's what I did. Today, as we speak this morning, I have 154 friends. So I have brought it down to a very close and sacred circle of people who I actually communicate with. And so there are many people who were accessing the content before because I allowed them in that space who I don't allow anymore. And God knows how they or if they even hear what I'm doing. So there's a much smaller group of people who have access to the content on Facebook, but there's still the people on YouTube. I have healthy support there of people who enjoy the content and I appreciate that. And I've let all that go. So whatever those numbers are, don't pay close attention to them. You can't help but see certain things when you're interfacing on a platform, but that's not where my focus is. My focus as a human being and as a spiritual entity who's evolving, I'm a middle-aged man now. I'm not a younger dude anymore. I'm a middle-aged man. I'm 55 years old. I'm comfortable in that space. I see the generation below me. I see where I am in that generation and I see that we want different things. I'm not all that interested, Melissa, in a career in the way that I was at that time. I'm interested in Mm -hmm. meaning and doing things that mean something to me. And yes, I need to keep a roof over my head and keep food in my body. But how I do that, what I desire to make overhead happen every month is very different from what it was when I was career seeking and trying to become something in whatever career I was practicing, which was television for the last 30 some years. These days, it's whatever God's assignment is for me with whatever group of people and whatever culture and whatever occupation it's I'm very open to all of that it doesn't have to be anything that it previously was what is true and I think unique and will carry me is this space I will always do what we're doing right now because that's my gift I will always do this no matter what it's never gonna stop and it does take some spiritual maturity to accept that people come through our lives. Not everybody comes to stay. Ooh, that's the hardest one of all. Especially the ones you really believe mm-hmm. 
are supposed to be there. That's a uh, and hurting feeling. Mm-hmm. I will ask this much. You're still friends with Fred, correct? I am not still friends with Fred, who I still consider to be a brother of mine, but he's one of the people. I met him in 1989, so I met him prior to meeting you. And we have many great memories, many, many, many great memories of friendship and brotherhood throughout the years. As we grow, this is all about Uh the evolution. See, and this is how I've come to perceive that this, this is true for me. In my 55 years, Melissa, there have been many versions of Robert Wesley Branch. You have talked about a couple of them, different versions. Uh-huh. And as you, like a soft shell crab and as a snake, shed your skin, you reveal a different uh-huh. version of yourself. It might be slightly different color. It might have slightly different scales. It might have a slightly different pattern. You reveal different versions of yourself. And not everybody travels through the different versions of who you are some people get left in the shedding at different intervals in your life and so he's one of those people fred who has been left on the road more traveled i'm on the road less traveled he's been left on the road more traveled and i have nothing but love and respect for whatever his journey is ahead of him and how he meets that all those who i am no longer with on the journey i wish them well and i hope their journey is still progressing The original vision for this show, we talked a little bit about that earlier, was with Fred. Over the years, a friend of mine named Robert, who is also not in my life anymore, and Fred, the three of us, because we were all in media, we called ourselves for years Media Boys with a Z, B-O-Y-Z. And my vision was to start this podcast with the three of us anchoring, if you will, from different places. Robert was in St. Louis, Fred was in Brooklyn, I was here in Washington. And we would each be reporting each week from our different places. That was the original vision. Only when I started to actually go from coffee and conversation to putting it together Uh and needing to have work product from these people so we could have a show every week, it didn't happen. And it became very clear to me early on that if I wanted to actually do this regularly and do it well, I was going to have to do it myself. So that's what I did. I ended up doing it myself. So Fred came on. He was on the first or second show. He stayed with me a couple of shows, but he wasn't dependable and he wasn't reliable. I couldn't count on him. And you can't produce a show if you can't count on people. I couldn't count on Robert. So that right there, what I'm telling you, shows you and reveals people's character. It reveals, are we friends or not? If we're not friends, then what are we doing here together? We're wasting each other's time. Exactly. So people have revealed to me, and those are two good examples of people who I was very close to in another version of myself. But as the versions kept shedding, those are two people who were left on the road more traveled because I'm on the road less traveled. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. I understand. When, I am curious, though. About? Why would you want to know about my family's history? Believe me, I am fascinated by your question. Okay. We both look back at the same memories and remember different things. For example, we remember when we were together at the park in DuPont Circle, but the details of what happened that day, we both remember different things. You remember one thing, I remember a different thing. They both happened, but what we've chosen to hold on to or what our souls have chosen to hold on to over the years because of our own unique journeys is fascinating to me. It brought up that what keeps memories of people who are no longer with us, like, for example, my memories of Maisha, and even what makes people legends or what makes myths myths, what makes the story of Jesus being told 2000 plus years after this story happened. So we're told, right, is the stories, the stories that we tell. And many times I find in our families and even in our friendships, we don't know each other's stories. We don't know each other's stories. We know each other's memories. We can share those. I don't know your story of the Melissa 
from zero to 25 or 26 or 27 or 28 from the time that we first met each other. That's where our story starts at Ulico. But I don't know your story before Ulico. And, and the same can be said by you. Exactly. One thing I do know is your father played semi-professional football. That's true. Basketball in France in the Army. Yep, that's true. Okay, so it was a professional sport. That much I do remember. Are both your parents alive? Both my parents are alive. My mother turned 86 on yesterday. God bless her. And my father was 86 earlier this year in January. Now, which parent, I'm going to ask you a question. Which parent were you closer to growing up? Which parent was I closest to growing up? That's easy for me because um, we were just talking about this a couple of weeks ago. My parents and I, my parents have been married for, it'll be 60 years in January. Six zero. They got married on January 20th, 1962. I came in 66. So yes, they got married the year you were born. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They got married in January. I was born in August. Yeah. So we were talking about a couple of weeks ago because my cousin Ricky came down from New York. My mother's sister's son, my mother's sister died a couple of years ago of cancer. Her son came down to visit because my mother's brother is dying right now as we speak of lung cancer. He's in his last days and he has a house right around the corner from where we live. So Ricky came down, my cousin from New York came down to visit my uncle. People are starting to come down because these are his last days. My sister is here now for the same reason. So when Ricky was here, we were talking about mama's boy and whether or not he was a mama's boy and whether or not his niece is raising her son to be a mama's boy. And so I was what was considered and is considered the classic mama's boy, which I don't see as a bad thing was part of our discussion. I don't think it's I don't think being spoiled what we consider, you know, black folks, we come from such a deprivation mentality that anytime somebody is loved properly, we call them spoiled. No, that ain't spoiled. That's just being loved. I so my mother is the answer to the question as someone who I was closer to. And there are many, many reasons for that and which would take us hopefully into exactly the space that we want to go into today. And I would open up that space by saying that I find in not only in my family, but in black families in general, that father absence and father abdication is a major source of the ills of our entire community. Now, in my case, my mother and father were married and are married, but there was still some absence and abdication there in terms of the fatherly role. These are factors that led me into I, being oh, a mama's boy. I overstand. Mm-hmm. I overstand. Just because you could be married a thousand years has nothing to do with a dead election of TV. Come on now. And a lot of times, when you think about black fathers that are in the home, if they don't have somebody to model their behavior on, they're kind of at a loss. Exactly. When I really think about it, and I, and I have, I don't even know how black people are able to family and parent under such harsh conditions. Mm-hmm. It ain't you easy. Know? And then, <laughs> it ain't easy. Oh my Lord. How that conversation begins to become made manifest or real, as the kids would say, when you talk about father absence and father abdication, is to look at the men in your line. Because in my time knowing you, you have spoken gloriously and still do to this day about not only your father, but about your relationship with your father. So I want to talk about that and I want to see how we got there and I want to see how and what you know about your father's relationship with his father. Correct. And so on and so on and so on. For example, I'm Robert Wesley Branch. My father's name is Robert Lee Branch. So I get the Robert from my father. The Wesley, okay. I get 
from my mother's father. His name was Otto Wesley Kimbrough, K-I-M-B-R-O-U-G-H. So that is a name that comes from my maternal grandfather. Now his father, my maternal great-grandfather, was John Wesley Kimbrough. He had a son, Otto Wesley Kimbrough. Otto Wesley Kimbrough had a daughter, Clara Kimbrough, who had me, Robert West Branch. And I suspect that the name Wesley comes from John Wesley, who was one of the founders of the Methodist faith. So I suspect that that name has come down through the family through religious tradition. I can't prove that, but in the family history that I've done, I'm putting pieces together. My family, that part of my family line, if I just stay with the Wesley name, my maternal grandfather, Otto Wesley, and his father, John Wesley, that part of the family hails from or originates in, as far back as I can go, to Mentor City, Mississippi. M-I-N-T-E-R, City, Mentor City, Mississippi. That's where they come from. And migrated from there at the Industrial Revolution, coming up from the the Great Migration, coming up from the rural south to the Industrial North. They migrated from the Delta area of Mississippi to Chicago. My grandfather, Otto Wesley, after whom I'm named, he had five or six brothers. All the brothers went to Chicago when they migrated, and he, my grandfather, went to Pittsburgh. And that's where he married my grandmother, and they had my mother. So that part of the family comes from Mississippi. Now, my mother's mother, so the woman that Otto Wesley Kimbrough married and had my mother, she's a Hairston or was a Hairston, H-A-I-R-S-T-O-N. The Hairstons were one of the biggest slave-owning families in the South, originally from Scotland. They came over and settled in Virginia and eventually North Carolina and held huge plantations in both of those states, Virginia and North Carolina. My ancestors were owned by the Hairstons, and therefore my mother's mother was Clara Hairston. Her father was James Henry Hairston. That was a big... Big slave-owning family, uh, the Harristons. And I can trace my mother's mother, Clara Harriston. My mother's name is Clara Kimbrough. Her mother was Clara, too. Her father, my grandmother's father, was James Henry Harriston, who comes from Lucinda Harriston, who was a slave at the Coolamy Hill Plantation in Coolamy, North Carolina. I have the records of that family from 1865, wow. when they had to give count to the government because of the Emancipation Proclamation. So I can trace it back. And that's at the heart of why we're talking today because I want to know <laughs> some of the stories from your family because I think it's important that we know where we come from. When you ask Prince Harry and Prince William where they come from, those brothers can sit down and tell you a whole long line of their heritage. Much more difficult for black folks because as much as I know about my family, as far back as I can really go is 1835 to my great, great, great grandfather. I believe I have all the greats in there. He's on the branch line and his name was actually Robert who was born in 1835 in Bermuda 100, Virginia. I have. And when Ancestry.com came out, however many years ago it did, I signed right up and started putting in the information that I had, putting in the pictures. I have the DNA test. I'm blessed, Melissa, because I have the DNA test. I was able to get a couple of summers ago the saliva swab from my mother, the saliva swab from my father, my saliva swab. They all went into Ancestry.com. So I have all of their genetics analyzed. I have my African ancestry. I know the tribes. I can tell you from Africa that we originated from. Ancestry doesn't give you that much information, but there's Ancestry.com. Then there's African Ancestry.com is a different company. They can take you all the way back to the tribes. So I have the tribes that I'm from. Now I'm fascinated with my dear. <laughs> my mom's family comes from the Booby people, B-U-B-I. And they come from an island okay. called Biko Island. B 
B-I-O-K-O Island, Biko Island, which is off the coast of Guinea in West Africa. Yeah. My father comes from the Hossa and the Kota and the Sogo, T-S-O-G-O people from the Cameroon. And all this comes from Ancestry africanancestry.com who will send you the certificates and lays out all the what they call the alleles the chemical genetic dna breakdowns that lead you into different uh what they call haplogroups so it's right there it's all in your blood (laughs) it's all in your blood and your saliva in your blood products i should say not in your blood because i didn't give a blood sample but saliva it's all our genetic material is in there i think my brain would explode on the pillow if i uh found out all that information it would it would Oh, that's wild and overwhelming. Wow. And cool at the same time. I am vicariously enjoying it through you. I find it a source of strength to know where I come from. But even that's a lot of information that I just gave you. What I get more strength from and more even more important than strength, what I get more wisdom and understanding from is understanding to the degree that I can the story that my mother lived before she became my mother, that my father lived before he became my father. They were in their 30s when they married and had children, which was considered very late Uh at that time in the late 50s, early 60s. Where did your father's family come from? What state? Where did your mother's family come from? How did they get to Westchester, New York? Like, how much do you know about your family line? My grandparents came from Hilton Head, South Carolina. They were known as mainlanders because my grandparents were the first generation to come off of the island, the little South Sea Island, and come on to what they call mainland. So they were called mainlanders, but very very much attached to the Geechee culture. Mm-hmm. Your father's name, first and last name was? Richard Taylor. Richard Taylor. So Richard Taylor's family, your father, that ancestry line comes from the South Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina. And at what point Sorry. and where did he meet your mom? Do you know your parents' love story? Where my mother was from, she's from Savannah, born and raised in Savannah. My maternal grandmother owned a restaurant, and my father's brother, Steve, worked at this insurance company. So Steve kept talking about this beautiful brown-skinned girl and that he tried to make a move, but nothing happened. So my father, doing his reconnaissance, found out that her mother owned a restaurant. And so, unbeknownst to my mother, he showed up at the restaurant. And, you know, my father being very charming, he would stay behind and help my grandmother clean for the night. And my mother and her father would come to the restaurant to eat dinner. And there's my father looking slick. And so eventually he asked her out. Uh-huh. And so that's how my father got into, warmed his way into the family's life. Mm-hmm. When he spoke of their very first date, he took her to a restaurant and he ordered uh, alcoholic drink for my mother who was not a drinker. Mm-hmm. And then my mother said that after drinking that one drink, she started to get high and started asking to go home. So he took her home. But it wasn't long after that they started dating. Wow. And do you know what year your parents married? They met in the earlier part of 1948, and they got married in the summer of 48. So that was some fast action right there. And so what was your mother's uh, name, first name and maiden name? Daisy. Daisy? Uh, Daisy Dean Sider. Daisy Dean. That's one first name? No, that's two separate names. Daisy, Daisy Dean. Dean. Okay, like Dean. Mary like Mary Lou. Daisy Dean. Right. Okay. 
Daisy Dean. Ciders, okay, like sliders without the L. Ciders. Right. Your father was born in South Carolina. Your mother was born in Savannah, Georgia. Correct. So what do you know, Melissa, of your parents' Mm -hmm. journey from the time they met in 1948 and married in Savannah, Georgia, until 1962 when you were born? You were born in Peekskill, right? No, I was actually born in a town called Mount Kisso, New York. We moved to Peekskill when I was five. Okay, so what do you know about Richard and Daisy's journey from Savannah, Georgia, where they met and married, north to New York? Well, at my grandmother's restaurant, my mother used to talk about, she would come to the restaurant and get to a certain part and feel faint. Now, my parents didn't understand, but my father understood. So what my father did was he asked my mother, where do you always feel bad when you get to a certain area? And then she took him the area of the wall. Then my father took a pocket knife and pulled out a brick, and sure enough, there was uh, magic in it. When she saw that, he took her to something called Dr. Bazaar. They also referred to him as the Bolito Man, but Dr. Bazaar is the one who handled the hoodie, Greek Greek, shall I say. Well, it happened the second time where my mother would feel faint in her own house. They went back to Mr. Bazaar. And Mr. Bazaar told my mother that uh, she needed to leave where she was living from because somebody was trying to kill her. Oh, but see, I believe it because when you said it, see, that's some South Sea Island Geechee mojo they, stuff going on right there. They know. Somebody they threw down some cowrie like shells and some bones and told your mother exactly what was going on. And my father knew what to do with everything. Mm-hmm. Well, my mother was shipped off. Her northern migration was to save her life. Mm-hmm. According to, again, my mother and father, it was from, see, there goes my father, always doing shit he ain't got no business doing. <laughs> there was a family that lived above where my mother's restaurant was, mm-hmm. and my father was messing with the girl. And, you know, I would love to say my father was on the straight down, but he certainly wasn't. So he was messing with the girl, then he turned around and married my mother. So the girl was paying my mother back. And so when all this crazy shit started to happen, my father said, yeah, you need to get out of here. He sent her to live with his cousin, mainly up in Mount Cisco, New York, or Katona, New York. And that's how my mother came north first. Then my father finally came north. And then they settled in Mount Cisco, New York. I know that this is true because I can feel the resonance in my spirit. And we know that this stuff happens. See, when your father was messing with that girl and then married your mother, see, that girl went home and got her what they call sympathetic magic. She went home and got her little situation with your mama's name on it, her little figurine, and said, oh, no, you're going to pay for this. (laughs) And your mama started fainting. Okay? That's why your mama started fainting. And your dad was like, no, I know what I'm looking at. We, I've I seen this. His people told him, this is what happened, son. And he said, let me get her out of here. And he moved y'all up north. And there's always his ass doing something wrong. And my mother got to pay for it. And remind me, do you have siblings? Did you have siblings? I had an older brother. My brother had Asperger's. But I always felt that my brother never got a chance to really live. Mm-hmm. There were no resources. There's barely any now, but there really weren't any resources for him. There were none. There were no resources to help him really expand his mind. Mm-hmm. He didn't go on his own until we had to sell the house. And my he had to realize that my father was not coming back out of the nurse home. It was so sad. And because I was long distance, 
ended up, he had diabetes and his leg went bad on him and they had to take him to the hospital and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. It was sad. And then they put him in a group setting. That was the first time in my brother's life that he actually had some freedom to just be. Mm-hmm. But he was also at the same time lost because he didn't have so close to the family and we weren't right there to do anything with him or for him. So it was when he passed away, this is going to sound horrible, but I was almost relieved. Right. Because I know my brother. My brother, as much as he sometimes wasn't the most family-oriented, as long as he knew he could come to us and we could be there for him, he was all right. Mm-hmm. He'll come back and things will be better for him. Mm-hmm. I know it. Well, let's stay right there. When you say your father, he sent me out into the world to be the best representation of himself. I'm paraphrasing that last part. You did share in Uh our conversation that you do have a brother and did have a brother who did not have the opportunities to go out into Uh the world and to experience life at the scale and on the level that you've experienced it. How do you think your father, Mr. Richard Taylor, how do you think he saw his children and the differences in the lives that they were going to have? And how do you connect that to him saying, you're my secret weapon? My father knew, we never discussed it, but he knew my brother was limited in what he could do and where he could go. So my father, with me, I I always say he threw his Hail Mary past. Because he knew that I was the one child who could go out and experience this world. And because I was female, he wanted to make sure I was strong and I could take things. My father was a true engineer. He put it in my head and no one could take that away. Um, How to feel good about myself, how to go human, recover, and then keep going. That's something he taught me, how to survive. What he tried to do with my brother was just nurture him best he could. When I look back now, there wasn't a place my brother could be. And that's sad. Mm-hmm. Not like now you have Melwood down here. You have, like, organizations that help people who are mentally handicapped. who needed that extra help. And unfortunately, he did not get that. Not like he needed to. And that is where I think my brother's life was a tragedy, that... He made it to 62. But my point being, I am so grateful that I was able to go out there into the world, meet you and all my other people who I call so close to my family, and I feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You make me fulfilled that I'm so glad that I made. On this journey, I'm so glad that we have touched and agreed. Yes. And I do want to go back to something that you said, though, and paint a picture if you're open to it. Because what you just said was... Sure. Your quote was, we never discussed it. And you said that in the context of talking about you and your father never discussing what your brother's limitations may have been. So are you saying that you grew up in a a family with your mom and dad and your brother had some limitations, Uh but they were undiscussed throughout the family, the nuclear family, the four of you all? Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Correct. My parents did not have the wherewithal. He was just their son. Mm-hmm. He was just who he was. It wasn't like Franklin is autistic. It was my mother who catered to him. And I used to be very jealous of that. Mm-hmm. And it was on her deathbed that I asked her about that. Why did you cater to Franklin? It seems like you loved him more than me. And she looked at me like I was smoking a crack from the wrong end of the table. <laughs> I just loved him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Lord>. <laughs> right. He needed me 
more than you did. I knew you were going to be strong and go out here into the world, but I knew Franklin would not. That's the closest I ever came to having a conversation with my, any parent regarding my brother's issues. Mm-hmm. I would say he was mainstream, mm-hmm. meaning that nobody ever addressed his autism. Nobody did. Nobody did. Whereas somebody were to pull out the best of himself, that, that's only happening now. You know, if you were a child, you were put away. And institutions weren't fit for a dog, and that wasn't going to happen. Okay. So, so let me paint a picture. So we're sitting in church on Sunday morning in Peekskill, me and my family, my mother, my father, my sister, and in come the Taylors, Mr. Richard, Miss Daisy, young Miss Melissa, and young Mr. What was your brother's name? Franklin. Richard. Richard. Okay. Franklin, yeah, Richard Franklin. Richard Franklin. Okay. Are you saying that throughout that church service that I wouldn't be able or anybody else in that church would be able to tell that your brother had any kind of delays or challenges? Is that what you mean when you say he was mainstreamed? Yeah. Anybody who paid attention Mm -hmm. could tell that Franklin wasn't completely, but it was never discussed. Looking back now, no one ever said it, but it was always, well, Franklin's just Franklin. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They seem to accept, and I think they knew that he was not expected to. How do I say this? I'm looking at the older church member. They knew something was up. Mm-hmm. It was never uttered, and Franklin was just Franklin. Nobody stopped and said, you know what? Franklin has Asperger's. Nobody, no. Mm-hmm. You know how it goes. I know, because I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking about my, I'm placing this scenario in my own family my own genetic bloodline. And I see when it comes to mental and physical challenges that some of my family members may have or did experience. The closest we got to it in our family was saying that so-and-so had a nervous breakdown. You know what I mean? That kind of language is what would be used (laughs) to describe whatever was going on with so-and-so. Theodore, who was called Beto, Mm -hmm. he had nervous breakdown. My mother was there when it actually happened. Mm -hmm. One point, Uncle Thedo, uh, I love that they called him Thedo. My Uncle Thedo, my mother said, held a butcher knife. Mm-hmm. He was swinging a butcher knife. Mm-hmm. And there's a place called Wingdale. And he ended up in Wingdale for a while. Mm-hmm. So if you said that you went to Wingdale, that's uh, almost like a trigger for your ass is crazy. That's St. Elizabeth's, what we would know in Washington, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You say you spent some time in St. Elizabeth and everybody turns their head. And you know how when you said you mentioned E.F. Hutton, if you remember those E.F. Hutton commercials years ago, when they would say when E.F. Hutton talks and everybody would lean in. When you say you went to St. Elizabeth, everybody would just lean in and turn their head like, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Well, let's go back to your mother's deathbed and to you asking her about how she treated your brother and to your statement that you felt jealousy of how your mother treated your brother and how your mom said he needed me more than you. So my question would be, what effect, because you paint a picture of what I would call a silent agreement, that everybody in the nuclear family, you know, we all understand that Franklin has some challenges, but we ain't going to talk about them. Like that's a silent agreement. And that's in all of our families. There are are silent agreements. (laughs) We all know what's going on, but we all agree that we ain't going to talk about that. We ain't going to talk about that. So my question is, what effect did that have on you growing up as Franklin's sister and how you saw your own life and how your own worldview and your own possibilities developed? Well, I'll tell you, before I really had an understanding, Franklin was just my brother. 
I never thought of him as different. It was when they went to teach my brother how to drive that it occurred to me that something was wrong. Really, really wrong. You know, that Franklin never could pick up the mechanics of driving. And how I can remember them coming back home and my father being very upset. And my mother always coddled my brother. After that, the only way my brother could get a job is if my father got it for him. So that the secret agreement, as you call it, and I never thought of it as that, I definitely, by the time I'm now in my teenage years, it was just understood. But unfortunately, because of this, I also think my brother wasn't as family-oriented as I am. Very selfish person. So we started this talk about earlier, talking about mama's boys. Do you consider your brother Franklin a mama's boy? In the worst way, which is why when she passed away, I really felt more sad for when my mother died. Mm -hmm. My dog and my brother. Mm. My dog and my brother loved her so. Mm -hmm. That was her baby Mm -hmm. after I grew up. Mm -hmm. And the one who stayed around her and always wanted to be around her and wherever she went, my, my dog would love to go. If you were a mama's boy, then I'm assuming that there were many a day you and your mom would just talk together. Mm-hmm. Didn't talk together. Yep. That my mother and my brother were. Mm-hmm. And like I'm me and my dad. Mm-hmm. It's not that my dad didn't love my brother. That's not it. My mom was the one who coddled him and thought the world he could do no wrong. And I'm not going to lie. that I found that very resentful. I totally you know, get And it. I didn't understand why. Are you treating him? So why does Franklin always get the attention? Mm-hmm. That's all I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm old enough to understand far more than I did as a kid, if they did not give him that attention, the world would not have seen him at all. Right. He and, wouldn't understand his importance and significance. And as I've grown spiritually, Melissa, over the years, you know, we're in our 50s now. Because that same dynamic exists with, in my nuclear family. When I look at the relationships yep. between father and daughter and mother and son, I realize now what I didn't realize then is that there are kindred spirits that attach to one another in the bloodline. That's just the way it is. You're right. And so while it doesn't feel good sometimes, I look at the spirits in people True. and I go, okay, those are familiar spirits with one another. They just are for whatever reason. And Correct you are, sir. Yeah, and it, it and it sometimes it does hurt. And here's the blessing I think though when I think about myself. This doesn't have anything to do with you. The shoe may fit and it may not. But when I look at it, sometimes we we want it, that feeling, that deathbed conversation you have with your mother, we want that with a particular person in the family. But I guarantee you that when you look at your life, you may not have gotten it from your mother, but when you look at your life, God has given you that somewhere in your life. Yes, it has. Yes. Yes, he has. Somewhere in your life, you have it. I agree. In fact, it was when I got older, my mother lived till I was 20. Mm -hmm. That's when all things were falling into place. Our relationship, uh, from 18 to 20, we had the best relationship. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought that if he were still here... Mm -hmm. We would have gone through some really purging, shall I say. Mm-hmm. Me, being old enough to truly understand right. what she was going through. Right. On more of an adult level, as opposed to sibling rivalry and all that and that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You realize you're all you got. Exactly. If you had a problem with a family member, there's by no means, do I say, 
stay in that bad place. But on the flip side, you have to come to peace with something. Yes. You do. And that's how I felt. I really stopped communicating completely with my brother. I was so mad at him Mm -hmm. when my mother died. And when I look back at that now, my brother was just seeing himself. My brother could not really handle my mother's death. Mm -hmm. Really. Not really. Not really. You know, it's hard for anybody to handle death. Mm -hmm. But my brother, he did not have a true way to internalize it. I wish he had therapy, you know, like I did. Mm -hmm. My father used to be so sad that I did not want to deal with my brother. And I just kept saying, Dad, Franklin is not my cup of tea. He's not my cup of tea. Ten years before he passed away, I had reached that spiritual place where I can't call myself a good Christian or a good person, really, mm-hmm. and hold that against me. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I can honestly say that we hugged it out. Right. But that when he died, that kind of energy was not with me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I know in some ways my brother was jealous of me, mm-hmm. being able to go out into the world. Right. You know what I like about adulthood? I like how all the dots that made no sense to you made perfect sense mm-hmm. when you became a certain age. And now, all the bet you understand it now, and you can put it to bed. Well, on that note, on the note of putting it to bed, because we've opened up your brother's story, closing up your brother's story, can you paint a picture of what his life was? Did he live at home with your parents until their death and then he went institution or what was his path? You hit the nail right on the head. Mm -hmm. He never left home. And when he did leave home, it's because my father became sick and was never coming back from the nursing home. And unlike my parents, I'm, I wasn't able to take care of him. Me trying to hang on to that house so Franklin has a place to go, I could not do it. I just couldn't do it. When I went home for family medical leave the second time when my father was ill, I asked myself, could I move back to Peaceville? And the answer was no. Peaceville was my life. This is where I made my bone. Right. And I said, uh, I could possibly move Franklin down here, but no. He did not live a fulfilled life, I feel. So in the family home in Peekskill that you and your brother grew up in with your mother and father, your mom died Mm -hmm. first at age 62, I think you said, and that left you and your father and your brother, and then eventually you moved away to Washington, D.C., and that left your brother and your father in the house until your father went to a nursing home and was not returning. What did Franklin do then when your father left? Well... What I understand, so this is where things get a little hinky for me, too. Because mm-hmm. my brother, who had diabetes, sat in that chair. He literally broke down. Mm-hmm. No way he could work. So his leg, he had a wound. It became gangrenous, and they took him. So your of, brother Franklin um, had his leg that, amputated due to diabetes? Yeah. Wow. He was a diabetic, just like my dad. Mm-hmm. And now, with the house out of my hands, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. You know, as much as I love my brother, I wasn't running home to my brother every five seconds. So he ended up moving to a, it was like a place where all disabled people would be there. A group home. You know, he, yes, he was in a group setting. And I said, maybe he should have had this all along. Mm-hmm. I think he enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It gave him a sense of independence that he never had before. It wasn't the time when, um, you know, now disabled people of that kind of disability 
are now having fulfilled lives. Mm-hmm. He never had that, and that always saddened me because he deserved it. You so, know, he never had it, and he deserved. It. What became of the family home after your father went into the nursing home and Franklin went into the group home? I always sold it. You sold it, okay. I just, mm-hmm. yeah, I sold. Your mother passed first. She made her transition, ascension, as we would say, first. Then who came next? Yeah. Oh, I think my brother died before my father, Mm -hmm. but I did tell my father. He died a short time later, and I would never tell him. Right. There's no need to upset people unnecessarily, you know what I mean, at a certain point. It's just not a good thing to do. And so when your father was gone and then your brother was gone, your mom had already passed and the house was sold, is there a moment that you recall when you consciously thought, okay, my journey in peak skill is complete. Like, I'll probably never go back there. Yeah, and that's hard because I love my hometown. I love peak skill. I always will. You know, I don't care where, who I meet, where I go. Peak skill is my hometown. You know, I'm still a hometown girl. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.